I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death and dying, love, grief and hope. On our show, we talk to all kinds of people who through various trajectories have found themselves trying to explain the unexplainable. Trying to accept the unacceptable. Trying to make sense of chaos. This episode was just Itai and I. I started by asking what matters to him in life right now. So right now I'm I'm Jewish. I, I moved from Australia to Jerusalem three years ago. I work in a peace organisation where I bring together Israeli and Palestinian uh, teenagers. And, and just to put that in context, most people think that's a crazy thing to do because the majority of people who live here believe that peace is impossible for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I believe peace is possible. So I work every day to bring kids together, to talk to each other in Hebrew and Arabic across kids have to go through checkpoints to meet each other um, in our office and um, I I believe in that so that's that's very meaningful to me I'm also a journalist uh, here in Israel I'm also a a father Um, I'm also a writer I write regularly on social media and in other sort of platforms about my thoughts on the world and all of those things give me give me meaning and make me the person who I am today for you, what what does that phrase mean, that something gives you meaning? Um, I think if you don't have a purpose in life, it's very hard to get up in the morning. And I think especially during the last year of corona where, you know, so many things stopped and so many people didn't have to get up in the morning because, you know, they were essentially paid to stay home with all the various uh, job keeper, job seeker supports. Um, you needed you needed to find something to do, and and it's something I've believed my my whole life ever since I read that the Viktor Frankl book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, mm. which is something that very Amazing much yeah. motivates yeah my my worldview. Um, that if you if you have a how, you can survive any why any any um any any sort of adversity that you will face in your life if you have a meaning to it. Um, then you can survive it. And I, I very much believe that I want to, I, I was born in 1978 into a very broken world and I want to make sure I leave the world in a better place than which I found it um, through all of the things, whether, you know, I was a teacher for 15 years, um, through, my, through my journalism, through the work I do now with Kids for Peace, um, I want to leave it in a better place. And I'll say also maybe something as a parent. So I have I have two children, an eight-year-old and an eleven-year-old. And um, I think many parents want their children to be happy. And they often say to their children, you know, whatever makes you happy, that's that's what I want you to do. And happiness usually means something that earns a lot of money, you know. So in the in the community that I grew up with, you know, there was always a, a pressure on children to do subjects like commerce, law, medicine, those sorts of things, because they seem to be 
professions that you can support a family with and, and sort of moving away from things like arts and theatre and, you know, other, other sorts of subjects like that. And, and I, I think it's actually a fallacy. You know, when you tell someone, do what makes you happy, it often makes you sad. You know, we, we live in a, a society now that has rates of anxiety and depression like we've never seen before in human history. Um, and there's a lot of theories about why that is. Some people say it's because of smartphones, it's because of, you know, society and community breaking down. But I think it's very much tied to this idea of telling everyone do what makes you happy because what makes you happy might be just eating lots of food all the time or, or scrolling on your phone for eight hours a day or just watching Netflix <laughs> for hours and hours and all that stuff makes you happy, but it doesn't give you meaning. And, and ultimately when you don't have meaning, when you're not doing something in service of someone else, then you ultimately end up very unhappy. So for me, um, I, I don't want my children, I know it sounds like I'm a bad parent, but I don't want my children just to be happy because I think that if I raise them in a way that just makes them happy by giving them all the things that they want, yeah. um, which will make them happy in the short term, ironically, I'll end up making them very unhappy. And I would much rather them have meaning that, you know, where they, where they volunteer in organisations, where they, you know, I often talk to my kids about politics. Um, I, whenever there's an election, I take my kids to vote with me and show them how I'm voting and, you know, I make a big deal out of it. And I think, I think it's important for them to understand about the world they live in and the problems that are in it. I don't believe in like shielding kids and sort of keeping them safe in a bubble so they stay happy. I think, yeah. I think meaning is the opposite of happiness. So do you think you can have both? Is it possible to, to have happiness because you seem like a, a happy person um, with all this meaning that you've built in your life. Um, yeah, I think, I think meaning, it's a bit like, you know, in, in Buddhism, there's a, there's a concept of nirvana, which is like this ultimate um, bliss, I guess, you know, when, when you're, when you're no, no longer attached to anything. I used to teach religion and society and a question that people we always used to ask about the Buddhist religion is, they said, okay, you've told us that the whole purpose of religion is not to desire things. Mm. Yet every Buddhist desires nirvana. So then surely they're desiring something, right? But what's nirvana? Nirvana is when you've reached the point where you don't desire anything anymore. So um, I think that is in that paradox of a question is, is what you're asking really in that um, if the more I desire happiness, I think, the less mm. happy I'll be. But paradoxically, the more I get meaning, the happier I will be mm. because I'm not striving for happiness. Yes, yeah. Happiness um, in, in itself, if, if you are simply just striving for happiness, if you are, you know, not, not having any other goal but to your, your main goal is to get enough money to, to buy what you think will make you happy, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that that's problematic because it's so individualistic? You know, it's yeah, all about I, me and I, my own needs. Right, and this maybe this relates to my political outlook, but, you know, I very much believe in solidarity between different parts of, of society. Um, and I think this past year was, was a great example when, you know, wh why did I have to stay at home for a year like everyone else? 
because it wasn't because of my health. Like if I got Corona, I'm sure I would have, I didn't get it, but I, I would have been fine. But it was more, I did it out of a sense of caring for the people around me. Why did I get vaccinated? Because I did it because I want to, I want other people around me to be safe. And I think, I think so many times people look at sort of economic and social decisions, and this is the way politics often is marketed as, is this good for you or is it good for him and vote for what's best for you? And then I often think, well, I don't want to do what's best for me. I want to do what's best for society as a whole, even if that might be bad for me personally, because I believe maybe it's a bit of utilitarian sort of outlook, but the, the, the more that, um, the more people in a society that have meaning and that have purpose to their lives and can live lives where they're not facing oppression and discrimination and those sorts of things and the better the world will be. Because mm. often I think about it um, in my work in psychology is, um, I, well, I'll start a little bit further back. Basically, I, I remember on the first day of a psychology class, the lecturer said, let's go around and um, let's say why you've chosen to do this field. And it was just um, striking me how many people said, um, I'm doing this because I want to help people. And then I thought, okay, so you want to help people and then what? Like what would happen if you helped them? Oh, well, they'd be happier. But then what? Like, <laughs> So there, there still seems to be something missing in, in my view. If you're just helping people to make themselves happier, that's sort of not enough. But like I'm hearing you say, Ty, that you're, you actually want to help people to find meaning. In, is, and is, is that through a religious standpoint that you want to help people to find meaning? I think it's beyond meaning. Like if you look at my work in specifically in Jerusalem, there's, I live in a city that has a lot of discrimination. I mean, there's a wall running through this city. For me, it's not, it's not just meaning. It's about justice. You know, in, in Australia, I used to teach a course on Aboriginal studies and take kids to Yorta Yorta country and again and look at issues like the stolen generations and, and those sorts of things. So, so meaning is for me inherently tied to to systems of justice and economic equality and and those sorts of things. So it's not just about sort of feeling good about yourself or like you said in your psychology class about people being feeling a bit happier. I want I want people to make their focus more on other people and less on on themselves. Um, and I feel like I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but I feel like someone that that has gone through therapy and that has managed to deal with whatever it, the issue was that brought them to that therapy hopefully then can go and use their their sort of better mental health yeah. to do better things in the world and to me that's why I'd want to be a psychologist if that's a field I wanted to explore mm. because you can only you can you can only focus on on other things if you're in the mental state to do so exactly so you need those sort of preconditions in order to 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 react to to involve yourself to explore with society. Um, mm. Yeah. So 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 your position is that that sense of justice. Um, where do you think that comes from? 
Um, look, all four of my grandparents were refugees. Um, my grandmother was born in, in Germany. She left Berlin when she was 19, you know, shortly after Hitler came to power. Um, my, my mother was born in Iraq, in, in Baghdad, and they came uh, to, to Israel in the 1950s. Um, and, you know, I don't need to go through the ways that wars have affected um, the ways and places where Jews live around the world today. So for me, um, you know, I was I was born, my mum was in the Black Panthers once even in, in Israel, which is like a, a, a civil rights organisation. Um, so, you know, for me, justice was very much a part of, it shaped like, I guess injustice, sorry, shaped so much of who I was that, that for me, like, driving for justice was like a no-brainer like it seems like a very obvious thing that that I want to do and I also grew up in in youth movements and I was part of various organizations and involved in political parties as well that strive for those sorts of values so for me it's been like a very a very natural part of I also have this weird thing you know there's often in America there's mass shootings mm. um, and I often whenever there's a mass shooting I often try and look up the shooter and I, I read their, um, they often post something online, you know, like why they did this horrible act or if it's the same, same thing with a terrorist attack, they often sort of write the whole sort of manifesto and wherever possible I try and read them because I think when people do extreme things, you know, we often say they're crazy and in fact they're, they're actually super rational, these people that do these extreme things because, you know, you know, I think it stigmatizes mental illness to say that a terrorist or a shooter had a mental illness. Mental illness doesn't cause you to commit an act of terrorism. Often acts of terrorism committed by very rational people who see the world in a certain way and then put together all of these pieces and then come to the logical conclusion that I have to do this extreme act. And if I want to, if I want to sort of combat that, I have to understand where that comes from. Well, they've got an I'm... extremely strong ideology about yeah. the way they want the world to be. The pa- exactly. passion. And for me, yeah, for me, reading their their manifesto or whatever they mm. published online helps me sort of get into their head of like, mm. what is it that, that led them to do this? Because if I don't understand all of their reason and their sort of perverse thought process that led them to this extreme, then I can't combat it. I like what you're saying because it's I've kind of thought the same thing, but I guess I haven't admitted it. But in a sick way, what they're doing is noble. Like not not that it, you know, not that it doesn't break a million of my moral codes and human rights and all of that. But they they have such strong belief in their way of the world and their mm-hmm. framework that they'll go to those lengths to. Yeah. Like when yeah, you I can, mean, yeah. Yeah, Anders Breivik, you know, the guy that did the mass shooting in, in mm. Norway, there's a whole film about him on Netflix now, but like the, I think that's, he really thought that he was making the world a better place and he mm. he felt that mass shooting by killing those people who were of, of the left, you know, he, he felt like he was going to save civilization and the white race and, you know, mm. all, all of these sorts of things. And I think it's important to, to understand the fears that people like that have and I'm not in any way legitimizing them but you can't combat them if you don't understand them and it's like scary to read that stuff um when I was when I was growing up 
um, I obviously learned a lot about the Holocaust and um, and then I, I never really wanted to learn about it. And then at university, I was doing the Jewish studies major. And then I, one of the courses I had to take was a Holocaust literature course, which I was like, oh, really, I have to learn about all this sort of death and dying and testimonies and whatever. And then I don't know, after a while, I just started reading, getting very interested in the, in the subject and reading a lot of um, I started reading like Nazi test, you know, I was, I was reading their idea. I want to understand sort of how do, how do this like civilized people that gave us, you know, Bach and Beethoven and Mozart, like how did, how did they come to want to murder millions of people all over the world and conquer all of Europe and this area? And I, I just, it, it didn't, didn't make sense to me. And I, and I wanted to understand it from the source, like from, and, and they really believed that they were doing something good. They, they thought that by, you know, cleansing, you know, all of these people that they thought were, were impure, or they, were, they were making the world a better place. And, um, and I remember when I, was, when I was 30, for the first time, I went to, to Auschwitz, which is a concentration camp in Poland. And I'd been teaching about the Holocaust by that time for many years and obviously knew a lot about it. And until that moment, I still, until I went to the camp, I didn't actually believe that it happened. And I'm not like a Holocaust. And I just, I, there was just always a small part of me that just thought, I really wish that this story that I've been telling isn't true. And I remember getting to the room in, and there's one of those rooms where there's a huge pile of shoes. And there's another one where there's a pile of like hair. And there's like a Nazi jacket that they made out of hair that they took from the, from the prisoners. And then I'm just like, this is so sick. Like, I can't believe someone was collecting like shoes and spectacles and hair and like, like who does that? That's so weird. And at this point I used to believe in God and I didn't believe in God. And it was like a real crisis for me to of a faith in humanity. Not because a lot of people who are religious, they, they look at the Holocaust and they say, where was God? And I look at it and say, where was man? Like, how the hell did we get to this spot where we could think that it was okay to take these people and do this horrible thing and then collect their shoes and hair and all of this stuff in, in the process? Because, you know, my whole worldview is that humans are good and that if you give humans the right education and the right environment, then they can do good in the world. And he was an example of, you know, an, an entire country that launched the war and did all these horrible things and yes obviously there were Germans that that spoke out and they're very brave and so I don't want to say it was all Germans but clearly enough Germans supported um, Nazism to, to do this and um, and there was a real crisis of like so does that mean humans are not good and then does that sort of make my whole ideology wrong um, and it's still it's still a challenge that I have that that question of how humans can be so evil to each other, especially to strangers, is still, still something I find hard to understand, but I, I try and understand it every day, but I still can't get my head around it. Yeah, it's because you want to believe that the moral capacity desires that you have or what other people could have as well. Uh, mm. It's like that denial that you went into not even believing it's, tr it's completely true after so many years of teaching it. Um, 
it yeah I mean for me it completely boggles me like I I'm so fascinated by how someone justifies evil um you know some serial killers almost make the situation into a game um and like psychologically if it's a game it's a lot easier to to kill people because it's not they've made it not completely real in their head and just like the way Nazis would you know take everyone's hair off and have them naked and all looking the same so that's not completely real either it's not completely human in their eyes but but yeah the justification like when they get to the point where they decided okay we are going to start making these rules that they're not wearing clothes and how do they allow themselves are are people inherently evil or are they (laughs) it's um... I think what you say about the dehumanizer you know in the in the concentration camps people lost their names and they became numbers and Mm. in Auschwitz especially they had numbers tattoos on their arms and they were only referred to um by by their numbers um there's actually famous testimony from Katetnik at the at the Eichmann trial where he, he calls himself Katetnik which is a, a German Yiddish word for, for concentration camp prisoner because he he's, he's trying to sort of you know he's trying to be human but he's also connected to to that moment when he lost his identity and only became a number and I think um I think dehumanization is an in is often very strongly connected to the evil and why and why people inflict injustice on others. So that's why I'm always concerned about making stereotypes against against mm. groups that I don't I don't agree with. I'm always wary of um, of that. Like I know in, in Israel during Corona, there was a lot of hatred towards ultra-Orthodox Jews because um, some of them didn't, didn't follow the, the health regulations. And a lot of people said, look, we're all in lockdown because of the behaviour of, of certain ultra-Orthodox Jews or, yeah. or their rabbis. And there were, you know, video footage of them sort of not following the rules, going to a wedding, a funeral, something like that. And as a result of that, it sort of became legitimate to hate all of them and say all of them are spreading diseases and all of them are... Uh, causing us to be in lockdown and sick and, and, you know, all sorts of horrible things. And and whilst I'm obviously, I was against the, any rabbi or any person that said not to follow the health regulations, and I personally followed them all myself, I, I was wary of this kind of like dehumanisation process that was going around this group of people, which is 10% of my society. That's a lot, that's a lot of people. Um, and even though their worldview is like completely the opposite of mine, I was... I was always trying to be very vocal in in avoiding generalizations about about this group because yeah. it can lead us to a very very dark place when you start saying you're you're a disease spreader you're you know mm. like these sorts of statements I think is very dangerous so I'm always sort of conscious of the speech that I use about people I disagree with and I, I always say be careful about criticize you know criticize a certain rabbi for sure that said something horrible but don't make that into a generalization about an entire group. Yeah, um, I I find it interesting to look at the perpetrator side. You know what's going on in them that they have to come to that generalization. Um, and I guess what was going through my head when you were saying that was, well, these people are 
in a bad place themselves. They're in the middle of this coronavirus. They're going through stress. They're looking for an answer, but they want to take the shortcut to, to find an answer that's easy for them. You know, they're not, they don't want to do the difficult work of realising actually, shit, there is no answer. So, yep, shortcut. Okay, let's start generalising and then that generalising can lead to more and more and more um, evil very quickly. Um, but in saying that, the meaning side of things, um, which you, co- you know, cover so many different aspects that you've built around into your life, um, how does that all relate to death, do you think? Um, so, yeah, death is something that I was... I was very afraid of as, as a child, I think um, mainly because I had associated death with pain um, and I think a lot of people just don't want to suffer a lot. And then when I was um, 20 years old, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and eight months after the diagnosis, he died. And um, that was sort of a very real experience of death at a formative age. I was next to his bed when, when he died at home. And um, after that, I it changed like a lot of things about how I think about, about death. And I think I didn't feel like he had a painful death. You know, in his last few days, he was on morphine and, you know, all sorts of pain relief that we that we have in our in our lives today. So I I think death is something that I'm I'm resigned to, and it's something that that happens. And I don't I don't you know I, I'm not saying I'm going to do risky things now, but it's it's a part of life, um, and it's not and it's not something we should be afraid of. And I think it's important to talk about it as well. And I I talk about it a lot to people that have had bereavement in their lives. And if you ask me at a dinner party to talk about, it, I'll talk about it there as well. Like I don't think it should be a taboo topic because I don't think it serves anyone to have people not talking about that topic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so hidden as well because it's, it's it's something that we don't like to acknowledge maybe because it is so painful. How, how do you actually remember yourself breathing? So I remember um, a lot of people came to the funeral 400 people probably was packed um and then because I'm Jewish there's a ritual called Shiva where you sit for seven days and I think every day hundreds of people came to our house and shared stories about my dad and the good things he did and stuff I never knew about him really um what was interesting at least a third of the people who shared stories also shared stories about their own bereavement Mm. um and at first I was like well, I'm mourning now. Why are you telling me about your bereavement of your... Not, not that I was not sensitive to their pain, but I just thought it was interesting that they talked about it. And at first it kind of felt wrong, but like in hindsight, I'm actually quite happy that they shared their... Because I felt like a lot of the people that were coming to this shiva probably never had opportunities to talk about their, their own bereavements, you know, with other people other than their immediate family of losing their, their child, their mother, their father, their spouse. And so them coming to this to this shiver was giving them an opportunity that someone was going to listen to them. And you, in a way, we were like counselling each other 
um, through this loss. But then after the Shiva, you know, everything went back to normal. I, a week later, I was doing university exams at Deakin University and, you know, life, life moves on. Um, and it was specifically much harder for my mother than for me, obviously. Um, and, uh, and you, yeah, you just get busy again and, and you go on to do, do what you do. But I, I sort of, I remember probably one of the, one of the more formative experiences in my life I've had around death is when, um, a, a very a close friend of mine, um, Mark Baker, who's a, he's a lecturer, was at the time at Monash University and his wife, um, Karen Baker, was diagnosed with cancer. And I was in a community where Karen was a very active member um, of that community. I knew her very well and she was very kind and loving. And, and after she, she died exactly five years ago this week, actually, she died in, um, on the 15th of March, 2016, Mark wrote a book about her called 30 Days. And he wrote in this book about how he mourned for her for 30 days. And during this 30 days, he discovered all of these things by reading her letters and, and learning about aspects of her life that he, that he never knew before. And, and when this book came out, like, I was like, I'm not going to read this. I don't want to go there. It's death. It's like, whatever. And then my wife happened to have borrowed the book from a friend. So it was on my bedside table. And then I was like, okay, if it's in my, if it's in my bedroom, it's a sign that I should, should read it. So I read the whole book in like 48 hours. And it's, it's probably one of the most powerful books that shaped what I think about death. And I remember after reading it the next morning, my kids were out of the house. Like it was very rare that they'd slept over at Nana's house. And so my wife and I were home alone and I said to her, I want to, I want to talk about death. And she's like, let me have a shower and breakfast. You know, like the kids aren't at home. Why is this what you want to do? And I was like, no, we're actually home alone. It's not going to happen. We're going to have an hour together. Let's just talk about death for a little bit. Cause I've just read this book. And I said, open a Google doc. And we called the Google doc Frodo funerals. Frodo is the nickname that we call each other. Um, and uh, I said to her, look, this, I've realized that, you know, we've both got wheels, which talk really only about financial matters, about, you know, money and, you know, all of those sorts of things. But we haven't written anything about death to each other. So I want to make a Google Doc now where we sort of write what we want the other to know about death. It's about five pages, sort of two of it's, two of it's about me, two of it's about my wife, Calm. And I, and I wrote to her a number of things. I said, firstly, um, we planned our funerals. We, we wrote about like who we wanted to speak at our funerals. I, I specifically said, I want men and women to sit together at, at my funeral. I wanted music at my funeral. Um, we spoke about how we wanted to die. So I, I said to my wife, you know, if I get cancer, you know, and euthanasia is legal in the country I'm living in where I die, you know, I don't, I don't want to die in pain. And if, if you see that I'm sort of no longer with it, then please, you know, turn off the machine like don't I don't need to you know struggle for an extra three months it's not going to bring me or you any joy I told my wife that I want my organs to be donated that was very important that um that my death should if possible if it can give other people life then you know then please do that I, I really wanted that to be done and then I I also spoke about um, you know, at the time, my kids were very young. I, I said, I want you to write down how I want my children to be raised, because if we both die at the same time, someone's going to have to raise our children. They don't have any instructions of what kind of 
way we want them to be raised. We wrote all of that in and a lot of what we wrote is what I spoke about earlier about, about meaning before, before happiness. Um, and then on, on Yom Kippur of 2017, I was invited to give a sermon about, um, about Yom Kippur to the congregation I was a part of called Shira Harashah. So this was a year after Karen had passed away. And Yom Kippur in the Jewish tradition is a day that's all about death. Like it's, it's a day where you don't eat, you're not allowed to make love, you're not allowed to shower, you wear white, which is the clothes that you're buried in. And by the end of the day, you feel pretty close to dead. Like you, you, you're very weak, you're, you're, you have very dry throat, um, it's hard to walk. Um, and, and even though I don't sort of follow all the rules of Yom Kippur nowadays, but when I was in my 20s, I used to follow it very seriously. And there was something about sort of tasting death for one day a year that I don't know why, I just found it very appealing. <laughs> It's a bit bizarre, but I, I, I felt like there's something really important in doing this once a year in order to appreciate life. I have to sort of go through this Yom Kippur experience of, of death because, you know, in the Jewish tradition, it's meant to make you sort of reflect on your deeds and apologize to people, do tshuva and become a, a better person. And so I was giving a sermon at sort of the late afternoon of Yom Kippur where I myself was very fatigued and tired because I'd been eating, eating all day as, as were many people. And I spoke about this, um, this book, 30 days. Um, and, and at the end, I, I encouraged I don't know, 400 people in the room or something. I said, look, when you, when you go home tonight and after you've eaten and showered and you know, gotten, gotten back to being a human again, write about your death, like, Sit with your sit with the people in your life that are important to you, your your children, your partners, your your loved ones, whoever they are, and and tell them about how you want to die. And and don't write anything about money or wills or things that lawyers care about. Talk about how you want to be remembered. Um, one of the things that I wrote with calm was that in in the Jewish tradition, there's a concept called called shiva. You know, where people come and say certain prayers for seven days. And I said to come instead of if people want to come instead of saying these prayers, which a lot of people don't believe in or don't understand what they mean anyway. Um, if anyone wants to say it, they can say it. But I'd much rather that my shiver is a dialogue circle, that people, uh, you, know, you know, that someone facilitates people sitting in pairs with people that they don't agree with. So people have to match up. People could be young and old, um, left and right, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And that people sit with each other and they have to, for three minutes, you know, share about their I believe. And then someone else shares about their I believe. And then after that, um, people then speak back to the group and share what they learned from the person they spoke to that was different from them. And I said to my wife, like, I think that would be a much better way to remember me <laughs> than people saying prayers that they don't understand. So that's what I want to happen at my shiva. Because for me, pluralism is, is such an important value and, and diversity and respecting difference. And I think, I think so much injustice comes when people don't understand people who are different from them or people who have had different life experiences and it causes so much hatred. And if, if my death can, can result in 400 people sort of being more open to 
um, ideas that are different from their own, then to me that, that that would make my death a lot more meaningful than people just mumbling prayers in a language they don't understand. Yeah, yeah, because um, for me, um, I, I think Jason, who's the co-host, who's not here today, um, I think he asked me this question once, you know, well, what's, what's the point in meaning trying to find meaning you know what what's the point in life basically at the end of the day and um my long answer summarized is connection um Mm. which is you know that that that's another way of facilitating connection where you wouldn't think it could happen but there's so many wasted opportunities for really beautiful interesting connection between people who you know by social norms for some reason whatever group they abide by doesn't match with the other person's group and they'll never get the chance to connect so that that really like sits so nicely with me that way you yeah yeah thanks yeah and was there anything else that you envisioned for your own funeral um i wanted i wanted there to be music at my funeral like for people to sing Mm. um because i think song is very is very comforting i think stories are very very comforting food obviously and more for lots of lots of food as well um and but but mainly i wanted i wanted people to leave the funeral with the greatest sense of meaning and purpose in their lives um and if if the funeral led them because i know when i left karen baker's funeral like it was by far the most impacting funeral i've ever been on been to um and so and because a lot of what Mark said was, you know, a lot of the ideas of, that were later he wrote in the book, Thirty Days, and and I think that's what a that's what a funeral should should do, um, because you know my my personal autobiography I don't think it's that interesting, you know, which school I went to and where I worked and and that sort of thing, but I but I think my the bigger message I want to leave people with is to is to care about their their community and people who are different from them and try and do their best to, to just make small differences in other people's lives. You know, something else I've started doing in the past year is every morning I, I wake up and, and Facebook often tells me who has a birthday of my, um, of my friends. And there's like usually 10 people that have a birthday. And I try and I don't write to everyone, but I just try and choose, you know, three or four people that I'm particularly close with and I'll write them you know, a couple of sentences, happy birthday and something that they, why they're important to me in my life um, beyond just HBD, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's, I think it's just important as a way for me to, to acknowledge the, the people I have in my life, um, especially now that I, you know, I don't live in Australia, but a lot of my friends are in Australia and I'm not going to travel there anytime soon. Um, so, so that's, that's for me, like just a little humanist thing that I do because, because it helps. It, it feels like a right way to connect to other people. Yeah, yeah. I've, I certainly felt really um, connected to you when you sent that voice message on my birthday. And, um, yeah, it was, it was really special, yeah. 
that exercise that you did with Carmen, do, do you think it changed your relationship in any way? Um, it's hard to say. Like I've, I've known Carmen since I was 19 and I'm now uh, 42. 42 is the, day, the year that you're meant to find meaning in life, according to the Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm there yet. Carmen's uh, the, the same age as me now. Um, but, um, yeah, I think we've always been close. I think having children, though, I feel like they are 90% of the conversations I have with Karma are about our children, um, which is just all logistics. Like, can you pick up? Can you drop off? Can you make sure you feed? Uh, make sure this is signed for the school? Like, it's, it's, really, it's really that's the bulk of what we talk about because that, that's all the pressing needs that we have in our life. And I think any parent with young children will identify but but yeah it'll be interesting like how our relationship will change I guess as we as we get older and the kids need us less but now the kids need us a lot so that's that's the bulk of what we talk about yeah well that would have been a refreshing change to the normal dialogue <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure <laughs> yeah so much it's interesting content there I think that what I've really taken away from it is that um, that opinion that you stated that meaning is is the opposite of happiness Um, definitely something I I want to consider more and explore with other people as well how they view that yeah yeah thank Thank you you. and I I just want to thank you again Maddie for you know, uh, I think you're an incredible person um, and the fact that you do this podcast and bring these conversations to the world and just in general that you're, you know, a kind person that uh, that really, I think, cares about your friends and your family in a really deep way. It's a real privilege to, to know you. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak and doing everything you do. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Yutai.